Hi, Journey. Hi, guess. It's a treat to be with every single one of you today. And if you've been around here the last few weeks, you know we've been talking about the enemies of our heart and our soul and the weapons that God has made available to us to actually defeat those enemies, enemies like jealousy. This is the fourth and final installment of this message run. And by Andy Stanley's definition, those four enemies of our hearts and souls, they're fueled by the idea that somebody owes somebody something. Somebody owes somebody something. No matter who owes who what, as long as someone, whether that's you, me, or all of us, is holding on to a debt, there is tension within that relationship. If you remember back a few weeks, you'll remember, you'll recall that we talked about the enemy of guilt. And what does guilt say? This is a little bit of review. What does guilt say? Guilt says, I owe you. This is review, and you're not doing so well, so I'll coach you through it. And you slay the guilt monster with what weapon? It's the weapon of... Confession, yes, I heard two of you say it. We then talked about the enemy of anger, and anger says, you owe me, and you slay the anger monster with what weapon? Forgiveness, good job, you're catching on, way to go. Last weekend, we talked about the enemy of greed, and greed says, I owe me, and you slay the greed monster through generous giving, especially to God's work through his local church, and today we're talking about the jealousy monster. You got any guesses what the jealousy monster is? says. According to Andy Stanley, jealousy says, check this out, God owes me. Jealousy says, God owes me. And the jealousy monster isn't just an enemy that you and I struggle with in 21st century America. It has been a deal. Jealousy has been a deal since the very beginning of time. It's universal to the human experience. Think back with me. Cain was jealous of Abel. Esau was jealous of Jacob. Joseph's brothers were jealous of their younger brother's relationship with their dad. Commodus was jealous of Maximus and the relationship that he had with Commodus' father, the emperor of Rome. Woody was jealous of Buzz's relationship with Andy. (laughs) And at the core of jealousy is what others have that I don't. What others have that I don't. Whether it's physical appearance, talents, gifts, health, height, money, connections, etc., etc., that all equates to us believing that we have a problem with the person or with the people who we're looking around at who have what we don't have. But God could have fixed that for us, could He not? What He has, God could have given to you. What she has, God could have given to you. And that all falls out to mean that if God had just taken care of you the way that he chose to take care of some other people, then you'd be in a much, much better place relationally, financially, professionally, maybe even physically speaking. Which really means that the jealousy monster, it isn't so much about you having a problem with the people whose stuff you're jealous and envious of. Instead, it's about you thinking that God owes you. That actually leads you to hold a grudge against God. And here's the deal with the jealousy monster. Either we reconcile the truth, however unpleasant it sounds to us to actually think about having a grudge against God, or this jealousy monster will continue to eat your lunch, wreck your relationships, and frankly, will ruin your life. The driving force, see, behind every single relational struggle you will ever have or ever have had is the exact same driving force that's behind the jealousy monster. Every last one of them. Check this out. 
the very well-credentialed James, whose half-brother happened to be the savior of the world, wrote in his very creatively self-titled bestseller, James, the fourth chapter, asking this question. You can turn your Bible there if you'd like to. James chapter four, verse one. You're welcome to follow along on the screens. Here's what the Bible says. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? And some of us read that, hear that, and go, you've got to be kidding, James. What kind of a stupid question is this? You mean to tell me that James wrote that question and he got published in the best-selling book of all time? Give me a break. How many different answers are there to that question? Are you talking about the quarrels at my church, the quarrels at my office, the quarrels with my family, the quarrels with my neighbors? James, which quarrel are you talking about? For every quarrel, for every fight, there's a different cause, is there not? Not according to James, which is what makes his revelation of God's truth so incredibly brilliant, even if the question seems dumb to you and me. Forget the circumstances, what's at the heart of every single quarrel and fight you have. James answers the question. Keep reading in James 4.1. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? Isn't that where they come from? Another way to say what James is saying there is that your, my, our external conflicts come to pass as a result of a conflict inside of here that has worked its way to the outside of us. We quarrel and fight out here because there's this battle going on in here and it's bubbling from the inside to the outside and some of that battle gets on you. James paints that picture, doesn't he? There's all these conflicting desires bubbling and gurgling around in here. And if and when you bump into me too hard, what's in here sloshes out and gets on you. And here's how this works itself out most commonly. The people who are the closest to us, whom we claim to love the very most, are the people who we hurt the most. Why is that? Well, it's because they're in the closest proximity to us, right? That conflict that's stirring inside of us, raging inside of us, some would say, when I can't keep it in here anymore, it sloshes out all over those closest to me because they're closest to me, making them sort of innocent bystanders, as it were, which really means that the common denominator in all of my relational conflict, you know what it is? It's me, it's me. The common denominator in all of your relational conflict is you. And I don't think we recognize that truth often enough or well enough. How many times have you heard of a person or seen a person, maybe you've even been the person who when a quarrel or when a little fight stirs up, you just bail. You just bail out of that church, you bail out of that relationship, you bail out of that workplace, you bail out of that small group, you bail out of whatever, you just bail. The trouble, however, with just bailing out, though, is that wherever you go next, the next church, the next relationship, the next job, the next small group, guess who's right there? You are right there. Yes. Someone said it so well. No matter where you go, there you are. And because it's true that the common denominator in all our relational conflicts is me, the common denominator in all of your relational conflicts is you, we got to answer the question, what stirs up that internal struggle which threatens the peace of every home, the peace of every office, the peace of every church? What threatens that peace? What plagues our every single relationship? James gives us the answer, 
James 4, 2, you want what you don't have. You want what you don't have. So you scheme and you kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and you wage war to take it away from them, yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. The source, then, of every single conflict we will ever battle through is that we can't get what we want. We can't have our own way. It fleshed itself out just this week in the back seat of my pickup, picking children up from school. Dylan and Bailey waging war in the back seat. Now, the battle in the back seat wasn't really about Dylan wanting to rest his arm atop Bailey's head. It's weird. But see, Dylan, the battle was really about Dylan wanting his way and Bailey wanting her way, and someone wasn't getting what they wanted. Two people weren't getting what they wanted. It's true with kids, it's true with adults, and we do all kinds of things to get our own way, don't we? Look at what James says. You want what you don't have, so you scheme, so you kill. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and you wage war to take it away from them. Now, there's, there's probably some hyperbole in view there, the word kill and wage war and such, but isn't it true when you think on it, most murders happen because someone wants something, right? Right? And that word scheme that James uses has in view to be constantly pursuing, constantly striving after. The jealous person, picture this then, is constantly trying to satisfy a need that cannot ever be met. Cannot ever be met. And even after all that killing and even after all that scheming, you still can't get what you want. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, but I sometimes get what I want, right? James says, uh-uh, not so much. James C. is peeling back the layers. He's taking a look at our inmost being, and he's saying, look, below the surface are all these desires that are raging in here, and they're like hungers that are never fully and completely satisfied. It's a lot like our appetite for food, isn't it? Sure, I feel full after a meal, but then a little while later, I'm headed back to the kitchen for more. Why? Because it's an appetite, and an appetite as defined by Webster's is an inherent craving, which means by definition, it's never fully and completely satisfied. It's rather just quieted down for a little while. It doesn't matter if you feel absolutely stuffed after a meal, like so stuffed you have to like unbutton your top button of your pants. It doesn't matter if you're that stuffed or not. You don't just quit eating, do you? No. Those desires that James is talking about that rage beneath the surface in our inmost being, those inherent cravings, unquenchable thirst, thirst for stuff, for money, for fun, for recognition, for progress, intimacy, sex, relationship, partnership, on and on it could go. And we never fully get enough of any of those things to quench those desires. C.S. Lewis put it this way, the more you feed an appetite, the more it escalates in intensity. Appetites, he said, grow through indulgence, not neglect. Gluttons think just as much about food as starving people do. That's true. If you have power, you want more. If you have money, you want more. If you bounce from partner to partner to partner to partner, you're doing that because you're never completely and fully satisfied with any of them. So you ask the question, is indulging the desires the best way to deal with them? James says, "Huh? uh No way. It is our endless pursuit then of desire satisfaction that's fueling our quarrels and our fights. 
And when you or I get into a quarrel and a fight, it's because you or I are trying to satisfy our desires in a way that brushes up against the way that you're trying to satisfy yours. There's a quarrel. There's a fight. So what do we do with all of that? What do we do with these desires that can't ever be satiated? James directs that we would bring them to the one who created them in the first place. What's he say in James 4, 2? Look at the text. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and you wage war to take it away from them. Here it is. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. James is saying, hello, you're not getting what you want because you're asking the completely wrong person. And we're asking the wrong person, we're asking the wrong people by trying to saddle up the people who we love the most with fulfilling desires that they were never designed to fulfill in the first place. All those desires were meant and designed to be brought to the feet of God himself, deposited there. And God's saying, you, all of you, all those quarrels, all those fights that come about because you're trying to satisfy some insatiable deep down desire within you, those could have been avoided completely if you would have only come to me first instead of trying to squeeze whatever you think you need out of the most important people in your life. Stop that, God says. After all, was it your brother, your sister, your spouse, your boss, your neighbor, your classmate, your roommate who created those desires that are never fully satiated? Uh Uh-uh. So how could we then expect mere human beings to be able to satisfy them? Take them to God, James says. And that does, just so we're clear, that does not mean that you pray for God to change the heart of the person or the people who are not giving you the satisfaction that you think you're due. How many of us have tried that one? This is about right here. James has something much more powerful in mind for us. He says, you bring your deepest desires, bring your deepest unmet needs to God the Father the one who made you, and pour out your heart in an unfiltered conversation with him. Peter says the exact same thing. First Peter 5, 7, here's what the Bible says. Give all your worries and cares to God. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. Andy Stanley points out that in the Greek, the word that's translated all in First Peter actually means all, as in every last word. One, that means that you and I have been invited and challenged and commanded and directed, whatever in the world you want to call it, to bring your every everything to God. Your every frustration, your every fear, your every disappointment, your every everything, none of it's too big, none of it's too small. Back up the dump truck if you must and bring it all. Dump it out. Leave it there. And that, Christians, should be unbelievably liberating for us. It means that all of those disclaimers that we like to attach to prayers, disclaimers like, I know, God, that I shouldn't be feeling this way, or God, I know that this sounds really, really petty, or God, I know I should be a lot more mature than this, or I know, how about this one? I know, God, in the grand scheme of everything, this is very, 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 very small, How many of us have attached those disclaimers to our prayers? God says, look, you're set free from all of that nonsense. You're set free from all of those disclaimers because God says, look, if it's important to you, it's important to me because you're important to me. 
If it's important to you, it's important to me because you are important to me. It doesn't matter if it relates to your love life or your lack thereof, your career or lack thereof, your marriage, your family, your kids, your finances, your education, your appearance, your whatever. Back up the dump truck and empty it. Unload it. Bring it to God and bring it to God and bring it to God and never stop bringing it to God. And while you're at it, while you're bringing it all to him, tell him. Tell him what you've really been feeling Tell him that you're pretty sure that he could have done better by you. Tell God that you're pretty sure he could have provided better, given you better opportunities. He certainly could have upgraded some of these body parts. Could he not? Just tell him. Just tell him how disappointed you are in how he made you and how he's treating you. Lots of us are reluctant to talk to God that candidly. We think like he can't handle it or something. Like he'll strike us down or something. Uh Uh-uh. He desires your candor. He desires your unfiltered, unhindered, uninhibited conversation with him. He can handle whatever it is, however painful it may sound. He can handle whatever it is that you're dishing out to him. And you're right. He could have absolutely done better by you. He could have. There's proof, right? Because he did it for them, and he did it for them, and he did it for him, and he did it for her. He did it for all these other people. What, what's my deal? And then bottom line, that whole conversation, that unfiltered, uninhibited conversation, and just say it. God, you owe me. You owe me. And maybe some of you right now are trying that and you're finding it difficult to look God square in the eye and tell him that he owes you something. If you find that to be a bit intimidating, I gotta tell you, you're in the exact place that God wants us to be. Because all you gotta do is take like a quick skim over the New Testament of the Bible. And it makes it very clear, doesn't it, that every last one of us is a goner, hopelessly far from God. But, God, because of nothing else except his incredible love for us, chose, decided to have mercy on us, and he gave us everything that we don't deserve. It's an F word, forgiveness. Forgiveness that came at the cost of his son. So in all actuality, while some of us want to sit here right now and tell God how much he owes us, we actually owed God a debt that we didn't have a chance of ever paying, and so he paid it for us, paid it in full. And him paying that debt in full forever ensures, folks, that God does not owe us a single thing. So while we're busy being jealous of them and them and them and them about what God gave them and didn't give to us, while we're busy holding a grudge against God because he owes us, he is in the midst of extending to us the very thing that we needed the absolute most in the world, and that is forgiveness. And he's given it away, and he's given it away, and he's given it away. Which in turn means that we owe God our everything, starting with an apology. An apology for thinking for even one second that God owes us anything. And this amazing thing transpires. After you've owned and after you've confessed that your fundamental problem with people is that you're not getting your own way, 
And once you've deposited all, and I do mean all of your desires and worries and cares at the feet of God, you're gonna have an entirely new outlook on how to deal with the people in your life, even the most difficult people in your life. It won't matter anymore whether they're giving you or not giving you the love or the satisfaction or the recognition or the credit that you think you're due because you're gonna have peace, like real deal, inside here kind of peace that comes from God himself because you're not trying to make people in your world meet needs that only God can meet. Now, I told you to bring it all. God tells you to bring it all to him. And here's the deal. I gotta be completely honest with you. All cards faced up. When you ask God, like he says, ask him for anything, bring it all to him, the truth is that he might not give you everything that you ask for. Look at James 4, 3. And even when you ask, the Bible says, you don't get it because why? Because your motives are all wrong. Your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. How many of us have been in that boat when we ask God for stuff? So yes, we're directed by God to bring all of our desires to him, and he might say no. Why? Why would, why would he do that? It's very simple. It's because he loves you and he loves me too much to give you everything that you ask for. That's the truth. Frankly, he loves the people around us too much to give us everything that we ask for. Do you know what a wreck I would be if I had everything that I ever asked God for? Holy cow. I'd be a train wreck. And yet, he says, ask me, and ask me, and keep asking me. Your every desire, your every worry, your every care. And look at what the writer of the Hebrews promises, promises as we do that. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. This high priest, speaking of Jesus Christ, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Wow. He did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. Promises. As we approach God with all our disappointments and struggles and discontent, we find his grace and we find his mercy every single time. And it's not like you're bringing your stuff to the one who doesn't understand. You're bringing it instead to the feet of the one who sympathizes with you. You're laying it at the feet of the one, the only one, who actually has the power to do anything about it for you. And you invite God and you invite the Holy Spirit of God to begin to work on your stuff in here. And once you've started to do that, there's something that is incredibly practical that you can do to defeat the jealousy monster. And I'm going to invite and challenge every one of us to employ this in our life starting immediately. Because you see, the jealousy monster has a vulnerability. That vulnerability is celebration. The jealousy monster is vulnerable through celebration. We talked about God's weapon for defeating guilt being confession. God's weapon for defeating anger is forgiveness. The greed monster is defeated by generous giving to God's work. And the weapon that defeats the jealousy monster every single time is celebration. That means, folks, for us to guard our hearts against jealousy, we must 
celebrate extravagantly sometimes the success and the size and the stuff of those who we have tended to be jealous of. And you know what that celebration looks like? It looks very simply like you and I going out of our way to verbally express congratulations about others' accomplishments, others' victories, others' successes habitually. It must become a habit for us. Just think back in your life. How many times have we refused, intentionally decided to refuse to celebrate other people's, other churches, other businesses' wins because you just cannot bring yourself to compliment them? You know you should, but you just keep it in here. If you are in that place, if you can literally not bring yourself to compliment another person, another church, another business, another team, whatever, that is the stranglehold of jealousy, and that is a problem. If your friend looks great in that dress, tell her. Tell her. Don't stuff that in here and say, I don't look as good. Don't do it. If your partner's new car is so fantastically cool and you so wish it was yours, just say it to him awesome car, dude. Wish it was mine. Did somebody do a fantastic job of pitching the board on that new latest idea? Say it. Go out of your way to say it. Did your competitor build a fantastic new headquarters? You so wish it was yours. Tell them as much. Maybe your neighbors, they moved into the home of your dreams. Say that to them. Go out of your way to say that to them. Make it a habit of going out of your way to celebrate the successes of others. And you see this deal about telling the truth of another's win that helps you keep your heart free of this tangled web of resentment that is the seedbed of the jealousy deal. Walking up to the gal who got the job that you thought you deserved and saying, way to go, congratulations, I'm really proud of you. That's you deciding to say no to the resentful emotions that are looking for a place in your heart and your soul to land. You're guarding your heart by doing that. You're keeping the jealousy monster at bay. And folks, do not just wait around to feel like, yeah, I'll celebrate when I feel like it. You won't ever just feel like it. Just do it. Just say it. Just start today. Start. It's been about a month or so ago that we opened this building, this campus, Two churches that we know of in town, E-Free and Christian Center, which Christian Center, by the way, this is sort of a little by-the-way thing, uh, Christian Center is actually going to be our neighbor out here eventually. They own land uh, 20 acres or so across love from us out here. They'll eventually be our neighbors. Those two churches, E-Free and Christian Center, they went out of their way to publicly, in their weekend gatherings, celebrate Journey's win of moving into this building and opening our own campus. They went way, way, way out of their way to make it known to us, to their own community, that they were in our corner. And they told us how excited they were for us. That's what celebration looks like. It is so fantastic. It is so cool. That's exactly what it means to celebrate others' accomplishments and victories and successes. And it's healthy. It's so healthy because it ensures that the jealousy deal is kept at bay. And so, Journey, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do to continue to conquer the jealousy monster in your life? Who are the people, you can tick them off probably right now, who you have been reluctant to celebrate in your life? Who in your world deserves 
a pat on the back? Who do you need to write a congratulatory letter to? Who needs a call from you to tell them how proud of them that you are? Maybe you need to hug someone as a way of celebrating someone's win. Have there been some people in your world whose achievements you have chalked up to just good old-fashioned luck and you've intentionally neglected to celebrate with them? Anyone's victories in your world brought your own insecurities to the surface, insecurities that have caused you to choose not to celebrate with them. Our challenge journey going forward is to develop this habit, a culture even, of celebration. Refuse day in and day out to give in to the jealousy monster. Stop saying nothing to others about their wins. Stop being critical of them as a way of withholding compliments. Make it instead the habit of your life to celebrate their successes. Go out of your way to cheer them on, whoever them happens to be. You'll be so glad you did. So glad you did. Could I ask you to take your things and set them aside and just move into a posture of prayer and listening to the Lord if you would? Give him your undivided and total full attention. absolutely true beyond the shadow of any doubt is that God doesn't owe us a single thing. And maybe you, without even realizing it, you've been trying for some time to kind of look God square in the eye and tell him that you feel like he owes you something. And as you've found that to be a little bit intimidating, maybe more than a little bit intimidating, I gotta say, that's exactly the place that God wants you today. All of us. Because what's true is he doesn't owe us a single thing. We were goners, far from God. But because of his grace and mercy and love alone, he gave us everything that we do not deserve. Forgiveness. Forgiveness that came at the cost of his one and only son dying on the cross for you to pay the debt that we didn't have a chance of repaying he just said I got it I got it and so the question that's left for you and I to wrestle with here today is are you ready to stop trying to earn God's favor are you stop are you ready to stop trying to approach God on your own terms and instead, take him up on his unbelievably generous offer, unconditional love, forgiveness, life change. Life change that leads to a newness of life and being right here, right now. Not just about heaven, but right here, right now, every minute of every single day because of what Jesus Christ did for you. And if that's you, if that truth is smacking you square between the eyeballs today, I just invite you to pray with me right where you're sitting, a prayer that goes something like this. God, more than anything else, I want a relationship with you. More than anything else, I want a relationship with you. Come into my life, please, God. Forgive me, please, God. I get it. 
Jesus loved me so much that he died on the cross to bring me back to you. So I can stop trying to do it my own way. I can stop trying to scratch, claw, climb my way back to you, God. I'm coming in through Jesus' death on the cross. And I repent. I turn from my sins. I turn from my own path. And God, I'm going your way from here on out. And that includes, God, a life of celebration. I don't want to give in to the jealousy monster anymore. I want to celebrate God with you. And that decision and that choice to yield your life to Jesus Christ, to make him your Lord and your Savior, that's the biggest choice you'll ever make. Nothing's, nothing is more weighty than that one. And it's such a big deal. It's so weighty around here. We invite people to tell us when they make that decision. And I'm going to ask you to do that with me right now. Nobody's looking around this room except me. This is just a you, me, and God moment. If you prayed with me just then, would you be so bold as to just slip your hand up and say, yes. I did that. Just don't be shy. Just say yes. Yep, right back there. Way to go. And you there, I see you. And you right here to my left, I see you. Hold them up and lock eyes with me. Way to go right there. I see you. Yes, I agree with you. And you over there, I see you. And you right there, way to go. back there, bud. Gotcha. Way to go. God, we don't want to be jealous people. We want to be people who celebrate. We get the picture, God, that you're a God who celebrates. And we want to follow your example. We want to do what you do. And so God, help us to take our eyes off of all the other people in our world, take our focus off of everything that they have that we don't. And instead, God, would you help us look on everything that you've given to us, starting with your son, Jesus Christ. And God, that we would just bask and we would just live in your incredibly abundant provision for us. And when you choose to bless us with something, God, we would just say thank you. When you choose to bless somebody else with something, we would say, sweet, way to go, cool. Help us, God, every day to mirror who you are to the people around us. Help us be people who celebrate every good thing.